You are listening to A Sickness of Silence, a special Challenging the Rhetoric series addressing the reality and the realities of childhood sexual abuse. My name is Sherry Roberts. I am a survivor, and so is my co-host and childhood best friend, Kim Lakin. Our story started when we were four. Tonight, 43 years later, we begin our search for answers here with you. Welcome to the show. Today is Thursday, November 5th. You're listening to Sickness of Silence, or as we call it, SOS. We're using hashtag SOS. The culture of silence lives on in every generation, and it molds each one just like the one that came before it. Silence is what is enabling abuse generation after generation, but it's our words that have always held the power to actually stop it. But it's also our inability to listen to those words and to share those uncomfortable truths that have allowed families to maintain their semblance of normalcy, not for the sake of the child, but of the sake of the child. The child is always harmed when these secrets are kept. Tonight we hope to help begin to break the cycle because we can only begin and it's up to you to help us get to a point where we can actually end it. The secrets, these unwholesome family traditions that go on generation after generation, we're the keepers of those secrets and we need to stop doing that. Every first Thursday, starting tonight, we're going to be here doing something a little bit different We hope to have an ongoing conversation. We don't want to just have a website. We don't want to just write a book. Those are all great things. But we want to keep talking because that's what this is really all about. And unless people keep talking all the time about these things we don't want to talk about, then these things will continue to happen to the degree that they do. And it's quite pervasive and quite perverted. And it's quite hideous. These are true crimes. We're talking about child rapes. Our show tonight is not about shaming, blaming, or naming. In fact, my co-host Kim and I, we believe that shaming of the abuser is also the shaming of the victim. And we'll get into that a little bit more, what that means to us, so that you understand that. And you may feel differently, uh, and that's okay. Sickness of Silence is about sharing solutions that work when we're all working together Uh, If we're just debating things or pointing fingers, then we're not going to come up with any kind of solutions. Every show that we do for Challenging the Rhetoric as well as this special series is archived after each live broadcast, and uh, so you can share it from there. Please check out our website at sicknessofsilence.org, and don't forget the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash sicknessofsilence. You can follow the show itself on Twitter at CTR Newsfeed, and we ask that you uh, don't keep our secret And instead, please share it widely, prolifically. Keep sharing it. Share it in all your social media networks. Share it in email. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family, most of all. So thank you for being here with us tonight. My co-host tonight, Kim, we have a long uh, a long story that we're just piecing together and figuring out all the details ourselves, but I couldn't ask to be doing this with someone more special uh, to me and more tied to the things that happened in my own childhood. Kim, thank you so much for being my co-host on this series. Well, I am just so thankful and happy that you found me a couple years ago, and I never dreamed that really we would be talking so openly about this, so... Um, I'm just excited to see where all of this leads and how we can be 
a help to others by sharing our story as well. So I look forward to it. I'm excited. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I mean, we have – it's it's been, you know, quite an experience for you and I to start piecing together some things. And when we're talking about such, you know, young ages as you and I were, perceptions are a little bit different. Um, so on that note, I want to bring in another woman who has been uh, an integral part of us putting this together. She is our social media manager and good friend, also a survivor. Her name is Sue Shugartz. You've met her before on Challenging the Rhetoric. Sue, thank you. Hi, Sherry. Hi, Kim. Hi, everybody. Um, so glad to be here and be part of something so working towards something positive and positive changes. Um uh, and to have all these people here listening, listening to our stories um, and putting it out there in the world is, is just a blessing to me. And, you, you know, I appreciate it. I know you put up a, a message on your um, on your social network because you haven't really talked about this much either, and we'll get into that also as we get into the show. We're doing a two-hour roundtable tonight for those that are listening, and we have a lot of people on. I'm going to bring on the next person uh, because to be a true roundtable, we need to have all these people. The next person is also a survivor. His abuse started in infancy. His name is Michael Skinner. He's a keynote speaker. He's an author. He's a mu- musician, and I believe he's also a professor. Michael, are you here with us? I am here with you, but I am not a professor. <laughs> ah, I, you know, I think I, I, I think my my show notes kind of crossed over. Sorry about that. <laughs> hey, you do do I a speak, lot of great teaching I, things, though. I speak at colleges, but I don't think that qualifies for a professor. I think they'd they'd take exception to that. <laughs> But thank you. Well, well, when, when we bring Joy on here in a minute, uh, Professor Brunker, um, I, I don't think she'll, I don't think she'll uh, be upset that I that I that I messed up. <laughs> um, so, Michael, uh, I'm going to go ahead and bring Joy on, and uh, then we're going to kind of start a discussion amongst us here. Um, so, the next the next person I'm bringing on is also a survivor. And her abuse uh, did not start in infancy like Michael's, and it didn't even start in, uh, you know, the prepubescent stages quite so young as Kim and I, but it was just around the same age as as Sue's uh, abuse had begun. And she is a professor in Florida. She teaches a class that actually deals with incest. Professor Joy Brunker is uh, going to be joining us now. She's written a book uh, called The Day I Told Mama, and uh, she's a wonderful person I've got to talk to. I've had an opportunity to speak with on the phone a few times. Joy, thank you for joining us. Hi, Sherry. Hi, Kim. I'm so happy to be here tonight, and uh, it's okay that you crossed me over with uh, our guy that's with us tonight. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I uh, I I have been teaching child abuse and incest, and as well as family violence and many other criminal justice classes for the last. Uh, 10, 15 years, and I am very happy to be on the show tonight to share and to hopefully bring enlightenment to those who have suffered abuse and that there is life after abuse. Thank you again, Sherry, for having me. Oh, I'm so we're we're very excited to have you, um, Michael. Let's uh, we're gonna we're gonna jump into this for the listeners. We do have a PG-13 rating on the show. Uh, we think most of us, I believe, think that it's pretty important that even the age of 13 that this is a message that is okay to be heard. Um, and uh, but that being said, 
some of the things that you may hear are going to make you very uncomfortable. And we are not the parents of your children, so that is a judgment call on your part. If you don't want your children to hear what we're saying, you can catch the archive later and listen without and then make a make a decision afterwards and, and self-censor. On that note, um, I want to kind of jump in before we start bringing the other experts, uh, which Joy, actually, uh, Professor Brunker, when, when, when the experts, the other experts come on at the bottom of the hour and that part of the roundtable, we're going to do a different kind of Q&A with you. Right now we want to kind of talk with you kind of from the survivor perspective. And so, um, but but Michael, could you tell the listeners a little bit about your abuse and when it started? It started, as I say, as an, an infant and a toddler. So there's certain things I do remember. Obviously, as an infant, I, I cannot give you specifics. But the, the toddler piece in four and five, I do. There's certain things, and it, would get, it was that both parents and many of their. Uh, pedophile friends, so there was a circle of them. Right, right, right. Um, the... It also happened in a church, so it was, uh, I didn't know that well, what a pedophile ring was, I did not know what child pornography was, but there was pictures taken, I used to see magazines with uh, children and adults and children with children and uh, I just I didn't have the words back then to describe what it was but I I do remember those things uh and so that so there was a, there was a lot of abuse there was a lot of abuse um Joy would you um would you tell a little bit briefly about the abuse that you suffered and then uh myself and Kim and and Sue will will start ask, talking amongst each other and telling a little bit of our own stories as well. Okay, I experienced my abuse starting at the age of 8 years old and it was by the hands of my father who professed to be a Christian and who went to church at least two or three times every week. And he would, uh, pro- he probably assaulted me, I want to say, in the vicinity of 300 times from the age of 8 to 12. And he forced me to keep the secret, which was we couldn't tell Mama anything. We couldn't tell anybody anything because it was our secret. And uh, about about uh, 12 is when I disclosed the abuse and my mother stepped in and she actually believed me and she stopped the abuse. But then she told me we had to keep um, the secret in Joy, the family. Joy, I, I, I hate to interrupt you. Somebody that's on on, on with us uh, has some background noise going on. So just a reminder, uh, if everybody can please make sure all their, their background sound is off um, because it is live, so I can't edit it out. Uh, thank you. Go ahead and continue, Joy. So I told Mama, and uh, after I told her, she told me and everyone in the in the immediate family, my brother and my grandmother, that we had to keep the secret. We couldn't tell anybody. In the 1970s, you just didn't tell anyone that you were being sexually abused because then you would be ostracized by everyone in society. So we had to continue the secret after I revealed the secret. <laughs> right, right. Um, Kim, would you like to uh, chime in on that? Um, and talk a little bit about your experience in compare, you know, in yeah. you know, to to bring to the table. 
Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank Enjoy you, Michael. for sharing as well. I know that um, you both have been sharing a lot longer than I have. <laughs> and um, But I've also known, you know, I've just felt for a while that this is something that I'm being called to do. Um, and I've gone to a lot of professionals throughout the years and, um, you know, have felt the healing has come. And I think it is a lifelong thing as well. Um, my abuse started that I remember when Sherry and I met around that time, and um, it was the, the first abuse that I remember um, was Sherry's cousins who lived across the street as Sherry was living with her aunt and her uncle, and that's all part of our story together as well. And then um, and, um, it moved in away from... You know, we kind of moved away from that house, and I remember not being around those boys anymore. But um, then abuse within my home started happening, and that went on for a little while as well, for about a year or so, around um, 11, 12. And, um, and then I was, well, you know, went went off and got... But, got rebellious and had a boyfriend and <laughs> decided, you know, that that's the route that I needed to take. And, um, you know, I would say that there was definitely a lot of my decisions that I made as I was a a teenager and in my later years were just to get away from all that I'd had experienced. And I was curious, um, as Michael and, and Professor Brunkner were talking, um, at what point did you realize that it's, this isn't right. I mean, I remember thinking for a while, well, this is normal, maybe, or, you know, something along those lines. Maybe um, Michael might have thought that being so young and introduced to this. Um, and then at what well, point did you go, what, you know, this isn't right. Right. Looking and and before yeah. before Professor Brunker and, and Michael respond to that, um, let's have Sue talk a little bit about her experience as a child, and then uh, then we can kind of get into that because then we kind of are yeah. all there on the table together. Sue? Yeah, that's great. Okay. Um, mine was about the same as yours, um, Professor Brunkner. I was about eight years old, uh, but I'm in the minority. Uh, it was a stranger. Well, not a stranger. It was somebody known to the neighborhood, um, a house that we used to go to often, Um where parents weren't always there to, you know, guide anybody. So it was it, there was a lot of people in and out. Um, you know, for a long time it was just a kind of fun place to hang out. And this gentleman was known in the neighborhood. He was known in the community, and he was fun and charming, and everybody liked him, and he was an adult. And so it started with the whole grooming phase. Um, oh, that I'm beautiful and I'm so smart and so creative and, and oh, you're just, you know, let's go over here and we'll talk and we won't, you know, pay attention to anybody else. And it was, it was just, it was over probably about a, a, maybe a couple weeks, maybe a month that, um, the sexual contact started happening, and right. you know, you, you know at that point that it's wrong, and it's like, 
if I tell, not only did she get in trouble, I get in trouble. The people that were my older brothers and sisters that were supposed to be watching me, they're going to get in trouble. None of it was said. None right. of it was ever, like, out loud. But you knew that. It was It was always this kind of uh, um, threat. You know, to an eight-year-old, that's, that's a big threat. Um, a lot of times I wasn't supposed to be there. You know, this wasn't the place you were supposed to hang out. Um, so I was doing something wrong. And that started the whole... Once this all started happening, the whole self-blame and, and, you know, what did I do wrong and and things like that. And I couldn't tell anybody. I sent it around, I think, a lot to friends and family. But I don't think people understood. And I didn't know how to express it. it. Um, And it didn't continue for a a very long time. It It was only that summer. Uh-huh. But it had a huge impact on my life from that point right. forward. And and yeah, I don't think that there is any minimizing anybody's experience. And I that's mm-hmm. part of what this show is about is because every mm-hmm. situation is uniquely different. A a pedophile is not a pedophile, is not a pedophile, is not a pedophile. A child molester, they don't they have a lot of similar tactics and some of the same tactics and approaches and all of that. But Every individual person that has been abused by them has experienced something different. Michael, um, because your abuse had started at such a young age, it is, uh, it's younger than Kim and I, and ours started pretty young, but it's, it's younger than that. yours started in infancy. And so you didn't go through at, at that time. I mean, you were raised with that. You didn't go through a grooming process like some you know, slightly older kids mm-hmm. that are a little more like aware, what are you doing? Uh, yeah, and I had no hope my parents. Um, church and I'm having some audio problems here. Are you still there? I'm still here. Oh, okay. It dropped out completely, Michael. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Say that again, please. Okay. Uh, Well, for me, that it did start so young, and I had no safe place because this was happening in my home at the hands of, of both parents. So my mother's uh, rape of me was just as foul as my father's, and then the two of them together and their friends. So I I didn't have a safe place. Uh, there was nowhere to turn. So I was, talk about confusion, I, I just always felt dirty inside. I felt something was wrong with me, and I just felt I never belonged anywhere because I just, I didn't know what the heck was going on. And what also help make it worse was the fact that they were physically abusive, emotionally abusive, and there was a lot of neglect. Uh, they, I can honestly say, they didn't love me, and they let me know at every opportunity how I had screwed up their life. So there was the perverse sexual abuse going on, and then there were all these emotional pieces of just how 
no good I was as a child. So that that just that did a number on me. That that, that truly did. And uh, and I think I think adults who have never experienced childhood sexual abuse uh, and um, oh, and think that it's never touched them in their family or anything like that, which I would challenge. But um, I think that it's very hard for adults to understand when we're trying to convey those things because they're hearing and seeing from the eyes of an adult and not the actual eyes and reality of what it was like as a child, being the child, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, right. I've got a great photo that of myself, I think it was in first or second grade, and and the picture speaks volumes. You just look at the picture of me and, and the eyes and the sad face, and it, it looks like I've just been through a war zone or just witnessed some holocaust, uh, and people have commented on that, and yet I could see pictures of my own children or my granddaughters, and there's a world of difference. So, yeah, we pay a price for it, you know, And but as someone said, we... We do move on. We can heal from this. But you're right. Most adults do not comprehend. But I also feel there's a part that they stay in denial. They don't want to comprehend. They don't want to hear these things. So that's why shows like this and all the work that people do raising awareness is important because most of society does not want to hear about this. They don't. They still stick their head in the sand. Exactly. I think that's why... Yeah, right. So, I mean, I think that's why we're trying to do something a little different by having the ongoing series of podcasts to have a continuous conversation versus just be something static waiting for people to come to. Um, uh, Joy, uh, when when you were a child going through this, um, I want to point out a parallel between you and Kim uh, for the two of you to maybe uh, talk uh, on a little. First, Joy, and then, Kim, you can address it. Uh, We're getting close here in a few minutes to start bringing some more people onto the show. Um, So, Joy, your abuser was your father, your biological father. Kim, one of your abusers uh, in in later childhood uh, was um, a father figure, a parental. And um, where mine, and and I'm sorry I didn't chime that in, Uh, Kim was correct what she said about my family being her abusers as well. Uh, My legal guardians... Uh, not my father, but my legal guardians were, uh, the, the male was an abuser of me, the, the primary abuser. I was abused by four different uncles, some older cousins, uh, and as well as a couple of my mother's boyfriends at various stages. But the the, the main source of my abuse uh, was from the ages of three years old until I was 12 years old of the sexual abuse. Um, anyways, Joy, Kim, can you kind of discuss the parental aspect of that? Michael's also parental, but he his his started at such a much younger age, I want to hear a little bit different perspective at the older age on the onset. Sure. Well, well, prior to the abuse, I was considered a daddy's girl. I adored my father. He could do no wrong. I was born 11 years after my second brother, and my mother wasn't supposed to have more children. So when I came along being a girl, the only girl, and born so late, I was sort of spoiled in a way, and I I suppose um, my father was always doting on me, and then when he started the abuse at eight years old, the confusion was so great. 
I was so confused because I idolized him and I would do anything for him. So when he told me this is what daddies do to their little girls to prepare them for life and to prepare them for their husbands, I believed him. And I I didn't feel good about it, but I believed him because I loved him so much and I idolized him. So when he did yeah. this to me, I was so uh, in another world like Michael was talking about that you you are so confused that these this is supposed to be your protector, the man who's supposed to represent God in your life and represent a a figure of authority, but yet at the same time a protector. And he was right. totally the opposite. He became a, a second personality of possibly like a lover, a jealous lover, and made me the surrogate wife, the surrogate lover. And it was very difficult. Right. That really just messes with your mind as a child because aren't you supposed to be just out playing and having fun, so why are you thinking about sexual stuff? I mean, you know, I think that that's um, something that I noticed pretty early on when I was saying, you know, and asking you and Michael when you kind of recognize that is I think I was probably seven or eight before even more abuses had started, but um, I remember thinking... I wonder if other kids are doing, you know, thinking about the same things I'm thinking. So, yeah, it messed with my mind as well all the way through growing up. And then um, how do you present yourself as well? How are you – what is acceptable? Because it it seems like it's so much different at home about what is acceptable. You know, walk around the house naked, that's what, what's acceptable. And um, – <laughs> And so it just really does, it, it, it messes with your mind a lot. Can I touch up on what was just said about the surrogate lover? I think it was Joy mentioning that. Yeah, that sure. was something that later on, this is Michael again, later on as a young, you know, male, you know, 12, 13, 14. So now the role that, you know, that was my mother was doing with me, let's call it rape, let's call it what it was. It was great. I, this was not mm-hmm. sex. I, I I did not have a willing. I was not a willing participant. But what was confusing about this because they had been doing this for years, and now all of a sudden, my father is jealous about this, about the attention she's given me, whatever. And again, I I couldn't read their minds. Mm-hmm. I didn't know their conversations all the time. But now I was getting beaten even more because of this jealousy and it was like a jealousy that you would experience you know when you're 14 years old and you know someone looks at your girlfriend or your boyfriend and you're all upset and that was just and that just did an emotional that really messed up my head in so many ways michael i i this is sherry i would like to uh, address that because i had a similar dynamic um, my caregivers being my aunt and uncle, um, they became my guardians at the age of about three and a half, and this had started at that time. As I was getting older, I developed very early in a physical sense, and there became a my my aunt was aware at some point of the things that were happening, but it became very apparent to me as I began developing at such a young age uh, that 
there was a bit of a power struggle type thing that I didn't understand. So same thing exactly. Um, uh, Sue, would you like to chime in on that? Yeah, I went through um, a little bit similar. Uh, I also developed really early, about nine or so, um, and there was a big shift in, uh, like I said, this was my eighth birthday, uh, He and it lasted through the summer, and he disappeared. I don't know what happened, but he was around the following summer, um, and all of a sudden, because I had developed and I was not, I was no longer seen as a child. His whole, his whole demeanor towards me was completely different, and I, it confused me. You know, this was I had no idea what the changes in in me were. I had no idea what somebody else was seeing in me, um, but I started to notice. With his with his leaving, that there were others, and right. uh, Sherry and I, you and I, had talked about this. How having this radar, um, and I don't know this gravitational pull. Either they're they're around me, or somehow I'm attracted to them, um, depending on the situation. So there were a couple other abuses beyond that. Um, yeah, go ahead. Right. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I know uh, I know that Kim also experienced a little bit of that dynamic with what was going on in her household, too, at a certain point in time. Um, on that note, I am going to bring in three more people. First up, his name is Christopher Anderson, and he is the executive director of MailSurvivor.org. He's also a friend of Michael Skinner's. They've done stuff together about five years ago. Oprah aired a show that they were on five years ago today. Uh, so it's kind of cool they're on, on, on this show with us tonight, girls, um, But uh, about being survivors of childhood sexual abuse. So I appreciate having uh, Christopher on, and he's got the perspective of being a survivor, but also he is an expert because he's dealing with national organizations and government entities and all that sort of stuff as the executive director of MailSurvivor.org. Christopher, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me, Sherry. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here. And, Mike, it's it's wonderful to hear your voice again, my friend. Hi, Chris. Oh, it's – go ahead. Mike? No, I just said hi. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just going to say um, I'm going to go ahead and bring on the next. I'm going to bring all three of you on here yeah. real quick, and then we'll go go ahead and get into a little one-on-one with each, each of you. Um, I'm next bringing on Dr. Sarah D. Good, and she is uh, she's a sociologist. Uh, she's an author. She's a, a lot of things. She's been called kind of radical for some of her thoughts on dealing with pedophilia and pedophiles themselves. Uh, it is one of the driving things that that made me, me and and Kim decide to want to like really do this in this way. Uh, Dr. Good has been uh, really wonderful and very forthcoming with us. She is calling us uh, via Skype uh, from the UK, and I hope that we don't have any audio glitches. We've been playing with tech for days. Uh, Dr. Good, are you with us? Uh, yes. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes, we can hear you just fine. Lovely accent. <laughs> Thank you. Um, if you if you have a, a way to turn your volume up just a little bit, that would be helpful, but we can still hear you. 
Um, Dr. Good, I'm going to go ahead and bring on the third person that we're bringing on next for the expert portion of the panel, and that is a former Challenging the Rhetoric guest, and his name is Frederick Lane. He is an author, but he is also a cybercrime forensics expert, a child pornography expert. He is really one of the leading experts in the country. He's got several books out there. He teaches uh, within um, the classroom structures as well as people how to deal with those sorts of things. I'll let him tell you a little bit more about that. Um, I'm really glad to have Frederick with us again tonight. Fred, are you with us? I am, Sherry. Thanks very much. Thanks for holding. I'm sorry you had such a long hold. We've had some weird delays with, uh, I think maybe because I have so many callers on. Um, so now <laughs> we have eight people on right now, and it's it's pretty organized. <laughs> Nobody's even talking over each other. It's pretty good. So let's kind of um, start start with. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump into something because I think out of anything that we say here tonight, this is gonna end up being the most controversial, and it is truly something that's very important to Kim and I in doing this show. So, Dr. Good, um, you've had some issues with uh, different, you know, colleges and whatnot as far as some of your ideas and theories about how to deal with pedophiles and to that. Oh, first and foremost, let me say to the listeners, not all pedophiles actually ever commit a crime. That's really important to know. Not all pedophiles are child molesters. Not all child molesters are pedophiles. Not all pedophiles commit, quote-unquote, violent crimes, although all the abuses are violent in and of themselves. So, Dr. Good, could you tell the listeners and, and, and the rest of the panel a little bit about your ideas on that? Yes, sure. Um, is the volume okay now? Uh, yeah, we can, I mean, you're, you're calling from a long way away. You sound far away, but hey. <laughs> Is that better? Yeah, we're just glad you're here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, right. The research that I did, I, I did uh, some research between about 2004 and 2009, uh, and I contacted about 50 uh, self-defined pedophiles, um, and one of the things that I found out from that is exactly what you're saying, Sherry, that people can have a sexual attraction to children, but they can make the choice not to act on that sexual attraction. So we need, we do need to make a distinction between uh, somebody who's a, a, a pedophile uh, and somebody who has chosen to be a child sex abuser because the sexual attraction to children is not a choice. It seems to be something that just... Uh, happens. Uh, we don't know whether people are born with that particular sexual attraction, or for some people it's the result of a trauma. Um, but it's it's certainly it's involuntary. It's not a choice that they made to have that sexual attraction. There's a and lot of can people. Can I jump in really quickly? Yeah, yeah. And, I'm just gonna I'm just well. gonna say quickly that there's a lot of people that that disagree with that theory or they think that you're trying, you know, you or other people are trying to normalize things. So I just want to put that out there. Go ahead, Michael. Or is that Chris? This is Chris, yeah. And this, ahead, and, I'm not in any way, and, this, and I'm not in any way contradicting or, or and I hope this is going to come, come across as supportive, actually, of what, uh, of what the doctor is saying. You know, one of the things that I think is also very important for people to understand when we're trying to wrap our heads around what is child sexual abuse you know, right. not all sexual abuse that children experience is an act of pedophilia. And I think you actually said this as well. There's so many cases, you know, where, you know, a child, you know, or an adolescent boy 
uh, you know, experiences sexual violence in circumstances where it's not, you know, the act of a pedophile, you know, seeking sexual gratification. For me, you know, oftentimes it can be in the course of hazing or a ritualistic kind of initiation experience. You know? So there's a such a wide, wide swath. You know, it's very yeah, substance it's abuse, very convenience. Yep. Yes. That's, that's yeah, a great. That's a great point, Chris. Uh, that was a really good point uh, to put in, and that is in support of what she's saying. And and that's when we were talking earlier before we brought you all on is that there's so many different kinds of this abuses. I mean, how do you really truly define it? Uh, because it is so different, and what what I mean, I think that's a big argument out there. Oh well, that's not abuse. Oh yes, it is. <laughs> um, Frederick, uh, could you you yes. want to chime in on what we're talking about here? Well, there's a bunch of different angles uh, from which you could approach this, but the work that I've done over the last 15 or 16 years has primarily been concentrated on the role that the internet has played in people's exposure to underage materials. And one of the ongoing debates that exists in that realm is whether or not someone who uses a computer to view materials of an underage child is ipso facto someone who is going to assault a child. And I've worked with a lot of law enforcement officers who work for the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Forces and so forth And I would say overwhelmingly, they believe, and this is what they state in their affidavits, they believe that anybody who views a single image is a threat to commit a physical offense. And I think that we're beginning to see some statistical data that suggests that that's not necessarily true. I would agree with that. Um, Sue, would you like to comment on that? Well, I do think that if someone is a pedophile and using this, uh, and I think we talked about this on an earlier show, yeah, if they're watching child porn, they are watching a crime scene. Um, But it also, I think, opens the door to objectifying it um, and distancing yourself from those feelings and... uh, Rather than um, it could lead, um, I do think it makes it it, it it brings them into a group and, and an acceptance sometimes, and it will. I, I really have an issue with the the whole uh, the laws on child porn and, and watching it and and being part of that. I do think it is criminal. I do think that you that it can lead to a lot worse than, than we can even imagine. Um, right. Christopher, it's, you have a question? Well, I was just going to say, I think, uh, you know, there's, in terms of the research, you know, there well, some of the research that I've, I've seen recently, you know, draws a distinction between the idea of somebody who's actively collecting child pornographic material and somebody who may who maybe stumbles onto it. And what, what we do see in the research, or at least one of the studies that I've read, uh, and I could pull it up in a couple of minutes, uh, just I don't have it to hand off the top of my head who the authors were. Um, in the majority of cases where, in this particular study, they were looking at the interviews of s- suspects uh, who were collecting child pornography, 
the majority of those suspects reported they had already had um, hands-on uh, offenses uh, or had committed hands-on offenses to, to kids. So the distinction, I think, that needs to be fleshed out and very, you know, I think it's an important nuance is, you know, just because somebody potentially has been exposed to it or has seen it does not necessarily mean that, you know, we can jump to the conclusion that they are, you know, an active threat. But there is some evidence to suggest that if, we, if it's a person who, you know, there's credible evidence to show that they're collecting material, then it's more likely than not, or at least there's some research that points to the idea that it's more likely than not, that they have already or are an active threat to have hands-on uh, molestation uh, uh, in their background. Uh, Fred would like to comment on that. Uh, hold oh, on, Kim. Okay. Fred would like to comment on that. Okay. Thank you, Sherry. You're you're totally hurting cats at this point. So kudos to you for doing this. <laughs> but I really wanted to follow up. I wanted to follow up on Susan's point about the state of the law with respect to all of this, because I think she underscores an important point that we have some serious challenges in terms of conforming the statutes that we have to actual behavior. And let me give you a concrete example. Up until only a few years ago, I would have absolutely agreed with her based on the computer forensics work I've done that someone who is looking at a nude or sexually explicit image of an individual under the, 18, under the age of 18 was viewing a crime scene. But one of the things that recently has been announced and, and documented is that children are now producing the majority of new child pornography that exists in the world because they're taking selfies of themselves and they're redistributing those. And yes, those images are technically a crime and they technically constitute child pornography under the statutes that exist right now, but it's not really what the original child pornography laws were written to prevent. And so we've got a, dis, a discontinuity there in terms of, of reality and, and the law. And it is categorically not intended to excuse anybody who is a significant collector. I've worked on cases where people have had literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of images organized in very pathological ways. So wow. I absolutely agree that people move towards this uh, obsession that can translate into the physical realm. And it is also equally true that in a number of the cases that I've worked on, the child pornography was merely an adjunct to the physical abuse. Absolutely mm -hmm. no question. But I think the right. fundamental, the fundamental challenge that we face is that we've introduced technology into a younger demographic without necessarily having the wisdom to understand what they're doing. And it has deeply complicated the issue that we are discussing. Right. Oh, I, we, right. we've talked about this before with the, uh, you know, the hello Barbies with the Wi-Fi and voice recognition. And, I mean, we just keep giving our kids more and more. Kim? Right. No, I just noticed that Joy had a, a comment as well. I was... Yeah, go ahead, Joy. Okay. I just wanted to comment on the fact that uh, through my research and through all of the classes that I've taught, so many people believe in our society that the majority of pedophiles come from the realm that Christopher and Frederick are talking about. 
However, what I have discovered is that most of the pedophiles are right there in your family. They are Mm. family members. They are not strangers. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, so the children that are being assaulted are right there in their own homes with the family members. And so many people that believe in our society, oh, if there's a sex offender on the sex offender registry, oh, well, that means that our children are unsafe and we have to go over there and, come, you know, have a Salem witch hunt and uh, persecute that person, that one of the 4%, 4%, right. and they're probably pedophiles right there in their own homes. You know, that's a, that's an excellent point, Joy, and that's a great segue to ask uh, Dr. Sarah Good a question. When we're dealing with so much of this within families in trying to get other family members, whether it's your own spouse or your your sibling or your even your child that's older than another. How do you, how how Dr. Good? How is the best way that we can approach this in order to help stop a crime before it happens in families? Yes, both in families and and in communities as well. I mean, generally, what we want to do is we want to be preventing the first offence before it happens, rather than reacting after a child's been harmed. And what we're trying to do here in Britain. Um, is we've set up an organisation called STOPSO, which is uh, the specialist treatment organisation for the prevention of sex offending. Um, and we encourage uh, clients to contact us and get in touch with our website. Uh, and we put them in touch with local, uh, specially trained therapists who can work with them confidentially to look at how they can manage their sexual urges and therefore actually prevent the uh, offending from taking place in the first place. Because one of, the, one of these issues that I want to bring in here is um, that it seems to be the case that a person may become aware that they are sexually attracted to children when they themselves are perhaps in their late teens, early 20s. And so what we're right. doing is... We want to be getting the message out there to those young men, primarily men, before they start offending against children, to say to them, there are other people like you who are sexually attracted to children, but you do not have to act on that. You, you are a moral agent. You have moral choices. And there are positive role models of law-abiding pedophiles so that we, we, if we try and keep that distinction, uh, that the word pedophile isn't a synonym for child sex <coughs> abuser, that they're, they're different things. So a person can have a sexual attraction to children and choose not to act on it, and help and support can be put in place so that that person can manage that sexual attraction and stay safe around children. Yeah, uh, Dr. Good, if you could put the link to um, Virtuous Pedophile uh, uh-huh. into uh, the chat room for us, and the uh, Sue will share that on the social media pages. Um, I want to jump now to something that's currently in the news, big time. Um, it encompasses a lot of different things on this topic, 
and that is um, Jared Fogel, the subway spokesman. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Dr. Good, I'm not sure if you're familiar with all that's going on, but I want to point out a couple things before we begin. Um, I've written a few articles about this. Dr. Phil, uh, I'm not a fan. I don't watch TV much at all, but I happened to be laid up <laughs> with uh, an injury and clicked on the TV, and Dr. Phil was doing the special because he had this audio of Jared Fogel uh, talking to a woman, a journalist out of Florida named Rochelle Herman, who he had been led to believe by her that she was interested in him and going to be a cohort, and she'd been recording for a long time. My pro- my problem with this is 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 complex. So I want to start with what the big glaring elephant in the room is, and then kind of work our way backwards into just the aspect of Jared Fogel, the pedophile and sex offender, and and all of that. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that the FBI had been involved and had this woman working for them specifically on the Fogel case, for two and a half years uh, at the bare minimum, and she had been recording him for a few years before that. In these recordings, the, the what aired on the Dr. Phil show is just a clip from one single phone call from what is to uh, allegedly hundreds of uh, phone calls with uh, even worse uh, information on it. And in order to do their investigation and build their case, this was allowed to continue to happen. Now, just the one phone call that was aired is uh, its pretty good evidence. I mean, he flat out says he did this and he did that, and he's trying to plan more and talking about international stuff and going to Thailand and all of that. So we did a show last night about collateral damage unrelated to the military, and, you know, we have collateral damage in all kinds of different aspects of our life, and I feel like these children were collateral damage for whatever, but if there's nothing that comes out of the Jared Fogel investigation that's bigger and worse than what he was doing, I don't understand the year's delay of allowing this to happen. And Fred, I'm going to go straight to you because you are kind of much more into uh, that on the professional level that you can speak a little better to that. Sure. Thanks, Sherry. I, You know, honestly, um, I'll, I'll say right up front that I have not studied the details of the Fogel case, um, but I've certainly read a lot of FBI investigations into uh, child pornography cases and sex trafficking cases and so forth. And what I would suspect, and, and this is always a problem when these things go public, because it's very hard for the public to understand, I would suspect that the FBI was making a calculated decision about what additional crimes they could uncover or what additional suspects they could pursue by using a long-term confidential informant, which is what they were doing. And there are absolutely always trade-offs on that. And, you know, I, I think that the FBI should always be questioned as to how much harm was incurred for the actual victims while Do they have any responsibility, Fred? Do they have any responsibility no. to the victims that transpired during well, that time of the investigation? On, only a moral, only a moral responsibility, Sherry. I mean, not a legal responsibility because unless there's clear proof of gross negligence or actual malicious behavior, this is all entirely within the discretion of the FBI. This is what they right. do, and these, Chris, these are judgment I'm calls sorry. that they make every day. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Chris, would you like to comment on the Jared Fogel case? Sure. You know, I, I think everything that Fred said is, is absolutely spot on. Um, 
and in speaking with law enforcement and uh, Internet Crimes Against Children uh, investigators, you know, in, when I do trainings around the country, you know, one of the things that I think is very common is there's a, there's a sense of frustration oftentimes when you're investigating these crimes because in order to build a case, you need to be able to amass a significant amount of evidence, and oftentimes the further you go down these roads, you see there are all these interconnected webs uh, of collectors and publishers, and especially now with you know the the amount of material that's available uh, on the dark web, you know the parts of the internet that that we don't see when you search in Google, but investigators who actually know how to access these parts of the web can see that there's a tremendous amount of material out there, and it, it can be it can become very difficult to know where to draw the line and when to take action. Because sometimes when we take action, you're effectively cutting off your ability to potentially go after larger targets. So it, it is a very, very difficult, it's a very difficult challenge uh, from the standpoint of investigators. It that is. Said, um, I'm going to, I want to uh, go to Michael go here in a, in a second. I want to say to the listeners um, you're listening to A Sickness of Silence, a special uh, series on challenging the rhetoric here on Blog Talk Radio. Um, we have a, a panel of uh, guests and co-hosts here that are either male or female survivors of childhood sexual abuse, as well as a, a various experts in the field and on the topic. Uh, we have a lot going on here tonight, and um, right now, currently, if you're just tuning in, we're talking about the Subway Sandwich King, Jared Fogle, and all the pedophilia disclosures. And when we're talking about pedophilic crimes, we're talking about child rape. And you're hearing a lot of survivors, most of the people on the panel, regardless of their own expertise and credentials behind their name, are survivors of uh, one aspect of childhood sexual abuse or another. And you're hearing us say that although we're not okay with other victims, there is a process in these things. The, the Jared Fogle issue with the FBI is becoming a big hot topic right now, and so I appreciate that we're able to talk about this. Michael, can you comment on that? I'm going to take a different tact with this, and again, I respect folks' opinions, but if they had evidence on Jared Fogle and the director of his uh, nonprofit who get close to children, they should have arrested both of them years ago. This is not the drug cartel they were trying to bring down. If they had evidence against him several years ago, that is wrong. I also feel, yes, pops are doing a good job, but they also become desensitized. They forget these are little children. I, I don't buy this about yes. holding a case. I mean, these are children, children, and these kids are going to pay a price for the rest of their life. So if they had the goods on him, and I don't know, I'm just, I'm just commenting on what you folks have shared. They had the goods on him to arrest him and his cohorts a few years ago. On it, they should have done it back then. Michael, um, I want you to continue on that, but I want to tell you, I personally agree with that. I know Kim agrees with that. We've had copious discussions on it. One thing I do that's missing from this conversation, uh, for those of you that haven't seen this coverage that's been out there, is that this journalist that ended up working as an asset for the FBI for about two and a half years after she began recording him, um, Dr. Phil asked her specifically why did it take so long? Why didn't they just stop him and shut him down? She said that the FBI told her because their investigation into Jared Fogle had turned into a much larger investigation. 
So that's why when I broached the subject, I had said, if nothing bigger than Fogel comes out of this, then shame on the FBI. It's still shame on them. But, I mean, how do they catch the bigger fish? If I, I mean, it's hard. I don't even know. Go ahead, Michael. Continue on that with that information. Sorry. No, if there were bigger fish, but still, these are kids. I, I can't say that enough. I think this should have been stopped. And I understand this huge trafficking out there. They can go after them. I also think there's a lot of reluctance and, and slowness with a lot of police departments and still... It's still not pursued, and the the simple fact is, we also there's perpetrators amongst the police departments. So someone's pulling the plug or slowing this down. I I have really strong feelings about this because uh, I had I had abuse at the hands of police. So if I was a young child and thinking that was supposed to help me, yeah, this is personal piece to it too. But also, these are children. I'm just going to keep repeating myself, but they should have... No, that's okay. I'm going <laughs> to... No, they, w- those are valid points. I'm going to pass it to Kim, but I, I do want to... I want to say what you just said, Michael, is very impo- important for the listeners. We can't just assume that when we're talking about family members or strangers or family friends or all that, that these are not people of import in society. These are not just, you know, some, you know, uh, the proverbial stereotypical trailer trash you know, as these are all walks of life. These are clergy. I, I have I have a lot of uh, headlines just from the last couple of months about this topic. Uh, it, these are Santa Clauses for 25 years. These are teachers. These are police. These are, you know, they're they're everywhere. It's that prolific, Kim. Right, and not, you know, not only that, but um, we all, I guess, when we're in a situation. To, like, like we're saying, it's the grooming process, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, it, it is. It's the grooming process of it all. So you don't know who that is. You don't know if they're put in that situation. And um, what we had talked a little bit about last night as well, on Doctor, uh, when we were talking about the Dr. Phil show, um, about another segment that he had with an uncle and a niece, and the grooming process had begun. So, yeah, I... I hear I I see you, Joy. There, you want to comment on the grooming process because that is, I mean, that's what you and I had experienced as well as kind of that grooming process, and then it went to the abuse, and and you're sitting there going, whoa. So yeah, Joy, what do you have to say about the grooming? Well, I was just well, going to say that uh, for people who don't understand what grooming is, it's not someone it's not- coming along and deciding to brush your hair and. Uh, you know, makes you feel good like that. It's actually creating an atmosphere or a uh, type of drama, I guess you could say, for the child to be enticed. And or making them feel a, good about themselves. And, right. Yeah. It's like Sue was saying earlier that, that, that oh, you're beautiful, and, oh, you know, you are just such a wonderful person, and and come sit with me and, and be my friend and talk with me. And Well, of course, my father didn't say come and sit with me and be my friend, but he was utilizing and using his power over me in the fact that he was my father. But he did uh, do other things that he was not doing before. He showed me a lot of attention. 
He brought me candy. He was uh, he was just a different person. And grooming has a lot to do with enticing and providing an environment for the child to say yes. It does. And, uh, Joy, I'd like to point out grooming also has something to do with this little fact of if you tell, I'll tell. And we'll get into that in just a little bit. I want to jump over to Chris real quick. He had a comment, and then I want to switch gears for a second. Chris, go ahead. Sure. You know, uh, know, speaking of grooming, uh, one of the things I'll never forget is the man who abused me had ice-cold pink lemonade in his refrigerator. And that was something that was just like, for whatever, that was like magic to me, and I'll never forget it. We never had anything like that in my house. So, you know, a lot of times this, you know, there's Mm -hmm. a process of of gaining, you know, a child's trust by giving them special attention. And it really is, it's a process of of building a relationship um, in the most twisted form possible. Uh, that breaks down uh, a child's barriers and defenses. But, you know, I wanted to go back to uh, speaking about the the, the, Fogel, the challenges with the Fogel, you know, investigation. You know, and I'm, you know, like most, most of us here, you know, we're not privy to a lot of the inside details of the investigation. Um, I agree with Mike 100%. You know, it is unconscionable and frustrating that there was, you know, evidence Enough evidence, apparently, to to warrant arresting Bobel now, recently. Potentially, they had that evidence years ago, and, and nothing was done. And it is very frustrating. You know, I'll say one of the things that I think contributes to to these issues and these circumstances is the fact of the matter is the criminal law, you know, in many of the jurisdictions in this country, is not well is is not really been written or to to fully understand the dynamics that go on here. So, you know, it's difficult to file sometimes criminal charges that can be effective um, in in some of these cases. And, you know, one of the things that's a big issue when we talk about prosecuting uh, perpetrators, one of the biggest uh, things that perpetrators have is sort of a shield that they can hide behind, you know, are restrictive statutes of limitations. Um, in many states around the country, and I happen to be in New York State right now, which is one of the worst, you know, it is all, virtually impossible for somebody to come forward after the age of 23 years old and right. make a report to police uh, and have that any of that information be admissible in a court of law. The reason why this is such a big problem is because we know from the research that we've done and other people have done that the average disclosure delay, just, you know, and, I'm, and I know this for male survivors, and I don't know with what the applicable research for female survivors is, but we know that on average, a boy that is sexually abused will delay disclosure for upwards of 20 years. Uh, I was sexually abused when I was about eight years old by a neighbor. I didn't come forward and start talking about it and dealing with it until I was in my 30s. By that time, I was already well past the statute of limitations. The west and the, what this sets mm-hmm. up is a situation where it is impossible for the adults who are prepared and ready to come forward and and bring evidence against perpetrators to be able to do so. And we're putting the, all of the burden for protecting children on the shoulders of children themselves who are actively being groomed and perpetrated against. And it is absolutely mind-boggling to me that we can't make progress on SOLs in many of the states around the country. Chris, I, I gotta. I want to ask you something because you're saying something that's a little speaking my language. Kim and I have discussed this a few times, and I think this is a really hard thing to talk about when you're a survivor. And I think it's probably 
the hardest thing for people to hear, aside from the fact that, you know, kids have been abused. And I realize that this is not true across the board for everybody that has that, that went through this because our experiences are different. And some of, you know, some pedophiles, especially those within your family, they come at you, just like you're saying, it's very loving, blah, 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 blah. And so one of the things that Kim and I have been discussing is that I hate how we get painted, survivors of childhood sexual abuse get painted as promiscuous. And mm-hmm. I do see why, but I want to challenge that with something that's going to be hard to swallow for most people listening and maybe even some of you here. And that is that dependent upon the years that it started and dependent upon how physically violent it is, um, Especially, I think, I don't know if it's different for for boys and girls, because I'm a girl, but I think that we don't understand the concept of sex, but but human bodies, even at a young age, experience pleasure. And I don't know that it's so much that we're promiscuous, except I think it's more that those of us where it started at such a young age is we're, we're feeling a physical arousal that we don't know what it is, we don't know what to do with it, or anything like that. And and. I, I think that that's part of what comes off as "quote unquote" promiscuous. Chris, what do you think on that? Well, I think what you're saying is very, very important to help people try to to grasp and understand. You know, both for survivors themselves who are struggling with these issues, and and for people who aren't survivors who just can't under get it. The f- human bodies are physiologically hardwired to respond to touch in very, very you know, particular ways. It's a, it's a fairly simple stimulus response, you know, set of programming in our in our brains and in our bodies. The, you know, it is possible for, and I'll just speak obviously from the male survivor perspective. It's absolutely possible for a man to have an erection, to experience an orgasm, to experience physical pleasure, while in a state of abject terror. It, it's a, it's possible, you know, orgasm is not physically or is not something that is under our conscious control. And what oftentimes is the case for a lot of survivors is we, we have this conflict where cognitively and emotionally there was, you know, either a sense of terror or a sense of not wanting this this experience to happen and we were powerless to do anything to stop it from happening. But at the same time, there was a some some degree of potential physical pleasure, and that 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 can lead to an extraordinary amount of disruption and confusion within the survivor, you know, him or herself. I think that's um, part of I where all this shame stems from. Absolutely, I think there's one um, other I piece wanna... to this that's important to stress very quickly. Okay. You know, one of the things that a lot of survivors also experience in order to get through these moments is dissociation. So there are some survivors who do experience a lot of, they have the conscious experience of, of maybe some physical pleasure and it gets combined with you know, negative emotions. There's also a lot of survivors who also go through complete dissociation. And they don't have, you know, they almost go into sort of a fugue state in these, you know, in these moments, in these experiences. And that can lead to a totally different set of you know, challenges when it comes to coming to terms with um, uh, being, being abused in the aftermath of that. So I, I, like I to completely. 
I was going to say I, like I completely to say agree, and the disassociation disassociation thing um, needs to be further discussed, and we are going to talk about that. Yep. Uh, Joy, uh, Professor Brunker, and I have actually spoke on this uh, at, quite extensively, and we're going to discuss that in just a minute, but I do want to get to another aspect before we get too far removed from Dr. Phil and Jared Fogel, because there's a media aspect here, and I would like to have uh, Frederick Lane comment on this. One of the other stories that I put out was that after this two-part special that Dr. Phil did, he did his closing monologue, and that's where you're supposed to be, you know, ex- extremely responsible. And he pointed out a very important point, and that is that a lot of pedophiles don't have the kind of access and opportunity that Jared Fogel had. Not only did he have money and some semblance of celebrity, and especially towards a young crowd and going to schools, he had the Jared Fogel Foundation, which was specifically geared to children. So he was kind of like a child magnet. And most pedophiles, although a lot of them tend to get jobs where they're surrounded by children, this was kind of in the extreme. That being said, in Dr. Phil's closing monologue, he talked about that, and then he went in, in depth about how stranger danger is the least, although it is a worry, but it's the least of the, the worries that parents should really be looking at. He never once, not one single time, spoke about family members in that, and he was gearing it towards family, friends. And the media, the media has a responsibility here, and I think that everybody seems to tippy-toe around the fact that let's talk about children under six years old, Frederick. Children under six years old, according to the Department of Justice, is the majority. It happens at home. It's from a family member. This happens. The media has a responsibility in all of this, and we have to do something different. Fred? Couldn't agree more. I mean, one of the things that's great about this, Sherry, is that this is such a rich and deep conversation. There's so many different points to, to pull out of this. And, you know, just by way of example, to follow up a little bit on what Chris said, which ties a little bit into the media, and then I'll address uh, Dr. Phil specifically. But when we're talking about the the innate response of people, I think sometimes that is used as a way of shaming the victim because we don't want to confront as a society the fact that kids are in fact being attacked in these ways. And there was a, a, a just a horrifying example of a girl in Texas, and I, I want to say Houston, but I'm not exactly sure, where she was assaulted. But she was basically dragged off to a bathroom and raped. And in the press conference, the, the investigating police officer basically said in passing that she was not entirely an unwilling participant at 12 years old when she's being mm. assaulted by someone more than twice her age. And and to be fair to the police, I guess, you know, the guy's being charged with rape and with sexual assault. But still, even to make that comment, which was, of course, amplified by the media, is incredibly destructive. You know, it, it, there is no age of consent. There is no implied consent at the age of 12 for that kind of action. And I think Exactly. So right let's... Pause for one moment, Frederick. Let's make it very clear to the audience because you're bringing up something extremely important. We hear on the news all these different little terms that they like to throw at us at news stories because it's their news peg. And they are going to use the terminology that's going to hit search engines, and it's not always accurate. Some of this terminology is wrong, but I want to talk about what we call child prostitution 
Okay, uh, many of those people that are minors that are out there, uh, you know, having sex for money, they're either branded or tattooed. Mm-hmm. They belong to an adult. They are being abused. They are victims. They're not just these willy-nilly you know, problem teens out there. It, it, it in itself is a crime, and we're putting these children away behind bars when they're already victimized. Fred? No, absolutely true. I mean, you're you're opening a can of worms, Sherry, that we could do for multiple shows. <laughs> well, we are going to do multiple shows. Whoever's willing to join me every first Thursday of the month, SOS. Well, it's it, and it's a real pleasure to to participate with such a, a an amazing group of people. But let me say this: that when you do, I just took a real quick look at the news reports. It was out of Houston. This is a young woman who went to a pharmacy, a CVS, with her mother and grandmother, and gets basically lured off to a restroom and gets assaulted. And so, yep. for a a sergeant, and I'm I'm reading the quote now. She was not necessarily all that unwilling, comma, but at the age of 12, it doesn't matter. The first part of that sentence is what is in the search engines now, and it is instantly findable. And it casts this aspersion on the whole concept of prosecuting for assault. So that's one aspect of the media. That's probably more law enforcement. But when, if we loop back very quickly to Dr. Phil, I've, I've written about some of the things that he's done. I've been concentrating a lot on um, teacher-student boundary issues. I wrote a book in January called uh, Cyber Traps for Educators that looks at this extensively. And there's a, a large grooming process that does take place in the schools, and it's a fairly significant problem. And I was really dismayed when Dr. Phil had a teacher on who not only had groomed a student, but then pursued him 600 miles to his summer home to engage in sexual relations with him, even though he was 15 years old at the time. And so Dr. Phil has her on basically to explain how she resisted, 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 and then finally gave in. And I just thought there was a tremendous disservice to the young man who was, I think, a genuine victim here. And I, I just don't think the That's media correct. should be taking sides like that. No, they and, don't. And, and by it's the all, way, it's I don't think, Right. And I don't think the judge was all that crazy because I think she ended up being sentenced to 12 years in prison, you know, which is a fairly stiff penalty. And, I, you know, I think the fact that she was basically disavowing her responsibility on national TV uh, was right. very upsetting to the judge. Yeah. Right. Anyway. That's my rant um, about the media. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay because there's there's lots to rant out, uh, about the media. Before I go over to Joy to Professor Bruckner because I do want to get back to dissociation. But before we go off the Gerald Fogel thing, um, Frederick, you just brought up a couple things of of import that I, I want to talk about. And Dr. Sarah Good has a comment with regards to Rochelle. But before we go to Dr. Good. Kim, you watched, not only did you watch the Fogel piece on Dr. Phil, but uh, Dr. Phil, following that, the next couple of days, he did <laughs> another special with regards to an uncle and uh, his niece, his teenage niece, and, and some grooming stuff that was happening there. And we need to be quick so we can keep moving on. But there was a dramatic difference between those two things. And when Kim came back to me and telling me about what she had seen on the second series, 
she had said that although what Jared had did was sick and disgusting, what she had seen in the other thing about grooming, even though Dr. Phil and the people thinks the, the, the guy didn't offend in the end result, felt familiar to her. Um, Kim, real quick, and then when you're done with that, please pass it to Dr. Sarah Good because she wants to comment on the journalist Rochelle, and then we're going to go after that. I'm going to pass it on and go to into disassociation with, uh, doc, with uh, Professor Brunker. Right. Yeah, it did. I mean, that was um, the difference in being able to relate to what Jared was doing because I, I don't feel that I was in that kind of situation at all, and that's horrible. That's what you hear on the news and, you know, everything is that these vicious attacks and and stuff. And, and I was I was raped at 17 as well. But, um, and so I, I can associate the differences in the grooming process that happened even when I was four years old with Sherry's cousins and, um, and the grooming process that happened in my home, my, you know, around 11 or 12, and then the rape that happened at 17. I mean, there was so much more loving, you know, getting to, you know, I know that, that Sherry's cousins, I remember, I knew that they had a crush on me. At that age, you know, what does that mean? But then when they, you know, started being a little more assertive in what they were, you know, how when they, they liked When they started me, touching then, you. Then it was it was a violation, and, and I'm sitting there going, well, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense at all. Um, so, yeah, I, I I did share that with Sherry, is that I can relate to that. I, you know, I don't know if, I guess that Sherry and I have discussed this as well, that I guess that there could be, and this is why we've talked to Dr. Dr. Good as well, is, you know, there could be a, a point where maybe they don't even realize. This is what um, this guy, Kevin, the uncle, was was getting at. That's what he was saying, is he doesn't even realize that he's doing this, but you're putting yourself in a situation that, um, you know, just one drink or something, and you're feeling a little tipsy, and it just happens. And um, and so that's the difference. <laughs> Those are different, and and how I related to those two stories as well. And um, Dr. Good, what did you have to say about that? Um, be, I'm sorry. Uh, before before Dr. Good, before you respond, I'm getting some kind of I'm getting some kind of feedback uh, on the air from somebody. So I don't know if you have background noise going on or somebody's entered your space. But um, go ahead, Dr. Good. Okay. Um, what I wanted to focus on just briefly was uh, what. Um, the journalist Rochelle did in the Jared Fogel case because I don't think anybody would have realized what was happening except that she acted on her intuition. She had a bad feeling about him when she met him. He made a very brief throwaway remark, something about uh, finding school children uh, hot and she and the cameraman both heard what he said and sort of looked at each other and raised their eyebrows and and were really shocked. But then she continued to think about it and when she met him again, that was when she began to sort of try and draw him out and try and understand what's going on and and, and what kind of threat does he pose to children. And I think that was such a valuable thing to do. And what we need is we need more and more people like that, who will listen to their gut feelings, listen to their intuition, 
and then act effectively to to keep children safe to intervene. Dr. Good, I, I agree 100% with what you said, but I do want to be a very responsible journalist myself, and I want to make sure that everybody on the panel and the listeners, whether live tonight or in the downloads, understand one thing about the journalists in Florida that, that did these recordings with Vogel. And that is the fact before she ever went to the FBI, she had been recording him for years. She had felt this way about him for years, and it was not until he actually started asking if she would put video cameras in her home to see her own 10- and 11-year-old children that she went to the FBI. So as a journalist, back to responsible media, yes, Frederick, as a journalist, Mm -hmm. there is not a story that's so important that children are getting abused. She waited way too long to go to the FBI. She holds as much responsibility as the FBI for letting this go on for years to build their case because this could have been a slam dunk thing a long time ago with how many less victims. I'm sorry. I agree with what you said completely, Dr. Sarah, because people need to act on these things. When we see these things, we need to not – all of a sudden what happens – I'm sorry, I'm on a soapbox, but all of a sudden what happens (laughs) is we see something that looks suspicious, but they're attached to us somehow or they have a status, and we feel kind of uncomfortable. We don't want to accuse and blame. Well, you know what? Let me call bullshit on that, okay? That's crap. We have to report, just like Dr. Good just said, but we also need to not try to – as a journalist, I would never do that. I would never do that, even if it wasn't child sexual abuse, if it was any other kind of crime taking place. I wouldn't wait years. I understand that this woman did a great thing as an end result, and I understand that her life is forever changed and her relationship with her children and all of that. But there is... There is something not right with this picture. Um, And I want to go straight to Frederick on that. Well, I think that that's a really important point. And and it ties into what a number of your other guests have said about the importance of people whose gut feels a little off when they look at something or when they hear someone talk. And in the work that I've been doing on teacher-student relationships, There are so many instances, Sherry, in which we later find out that colleagues were suspicious of what was going on, but they didn't want to say anything because they weren't sure, they didn't want the publicity, Uh, the person's a friend and is otherwise an excellent teacher, and they just can't believe it, or they're concerned maybe they work at a charter school and they're competing for students. There are a lot of reasons why these things go on far longer than they should. And I will tell people who aren't aware of it right now that increasingly schools and individual teachers who are found to have had knowledge of these relationships are personally liable for potential damages. So there's some very serious consequences, even above and beyond the actual human toll that we're seeing with respect to the child victims. Absolutely, um, and I, I uh, before I go over, I want to I want to bring Sue back in. We haven't heard from her in a bit, and then Michael as well. Um, it, but but bef- I want to address the teacher thing. My sexual abuse from my biggest offender of my life actually stopped because of a teacher, unbeknownst to them, until just 
this last month. Um, I want to let the listeners know I'm doing my own investigation into my own life. As a journalist, I never thought to file a FOIA on things. There's actually a police report with Littleton, Colorado PD. I filed the FOIA on that, and I should have it in my hot little hands here in the next uh, week or so, hopefully, to see what this report actually said. When I was, it was three days after my 12th birthday, I was going to South Elementary in Littleton, Colorado, which is now Moody Elementary. Kim and I were students together there for the at least second, possibly third time, because I moved a lot. Um, and uh, the the authorities came out, as well as social services, child protection, and um, they came to my house. They separated myself and my brother and my mom and my stepdad all in four different corners of our house. And after a long interrogation there, they left my brother and I there, and they literally walked right down the street to a house uh, of my my family members that had abused myself as well as Kim, um, and uh, had gone in and came out, and they're all yucking it up in the yard, patting each other on the back and laughing, and I knew my life was doomed after that. And I was the black sheep of the family after that, but I can tell you that all the sexual abuse from the family members stopped that day. So Mr. Goddard, Mr. Robert Goddard, that was a sixth grade teacher at South Elementary, he now substitutes at, at, at Moody Elementary, which is the same school, different name. Thank you very much. You saved me. Um, so, Sue, you want to kind of chime in on this whole thing about schools? Yeah, I do, actually. I had an experience um, a few years ago. Um, I think when you're abused, you do kind of have the radar. Um, I was working next to a facility that um, taught um, special kids. Uh, Most of them were either autistic or Down syndrome. And right next to it where we would sit outside and have lunch, there was a small playground, and there was a gentleman that came by every day when the kids were there. Um, and he was probably 80 years old, had a cane, you know. Sweet, the, anybody would look at him and see the sweet old man. Um, but the minute that any adult tried to have a conversation with him, um, he would pull away, but he would certainly pay a lot of attention to the kids. Now, I'm watching this just as a bystander, Um you know, he would just really interact with all these kids that are already vulnerable. I went to the school and I said, you need to have people out here watching closer. This man who you don't know is interacting with these kids that are vulnerable. And they dismissed me. They told me I wasn't allowed near the park where we sat and ate. Because I went in there and said, I have this feeling. And, I, you know, they just dismissed everything that that I, I said to them. Um, this is still people burying their heads in the sand about who predators are. They can be an 80-year-old man. It can be a 17-year-old young man. It can be a woman. It, there is no delineation. Um, and they are responsible for protecting these kids. Um, That's but correct. people really, yeah, don't want to know these things. They want the well, predator to be the man in the horns and, and the cape or, you know, in the trailer park 
however they want to see it, but it's not always that way. No, it's not. And I'd like to point out uh, to the listeners, oftentimes the the child predator is one of the group of people that is your rah-rah cheerleader, the one that's always there and helpful, the one that you can depend on, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, Before we move any further, uh, I'm going to close out uh, a certain segment of the show with some of our experts here. Um, and then we're going to get into a deeper discussion with just just a few of us here to to round out the show. Um, the executive director of MillSurvivor.org, if you have not checked out the site, I, I highly encourage you, if you are a man listening to this show tonight and you have things that happened to you while you were a child, there is no harm in seeking help or answers or even affirmation of that. Christopher, what is the best thing that you can say to the listeners before we let you go tonight? Well, we have – thank you so much, Sherry, for allowing me to be on, and uh, thank you, everybody, for everything I'm that honored. you shared this evening. Um, we have a document on our website called The Seeds of Hope, uh, and I think you know one of the most important things that we try to share with uh, survivors uh, is – these four key messages, the, the, the seeds of hope is what we call them. And I think this is important information, important important ideas, important concepts for every survivor to hear and to hold on to and really understand that they're seeds. The thing, and, and they're seeds we need to plant and nurture over and over again in our, in our minds and in our hearts. And they are, number one, you're not alone. Number two, it was not your fault. Number three, it is possible to heal. Number four, it's never too late. You're not alone. It was not your fault. It's possible to heal, and it's never too late. And I think if we can continue to say that those four truths to ourselves over and over again, and share those with uh, with with our friends, with our loved ones, with the community, I think that'll go a very long way to empowering survivors uh, as a community to be able to do more of the work of healing that we need to do. Uh, and in the long run, that's really what it comes down to, because nobody's going to fix us. You know, a lot. Of, nobody heals in isolation. We can't do it by ourselves. But ultimately, we have to be the ones to do the work of healing, and that's what you know. That's what male survivors is all about. We're trying to empower survivors to to be able to share their stories, to share their voices, and to come together and and know that we're not alone, so that we can do that work of healing. That that's that was awesome. I have been sharing the the link to male survivor. It's also linked on uh, the SOS website at sickness of silence.org. Christopher, thank you so much for being with us tonight. I hope you come back again. We are going to be doing this every first Thursday of the month, and for anybody that's on tonight, if you'd like to commit to being here with us, I'd appreciate it, or if you have somebody to refer us to. Christopher, I I, I will be following up with you. I would like to do some things. On that note, I want to uh, let uh, Dr. Sarah Good and Frederick Lane know that um, you know you guys promised me the hour. Our hour is up. If you would like to stay on, uh, and you have the time, then um, I appreciate it. But if not, I completely understand. You've been very gracious. Uh, so I'm gonna let you tell me. I'm gonna go straight to uh, Dr. Sarah Good right now and and give and, and ask you for some parting thoughts on what Christopher just said. Um, about that, you know, we are okay, and and so on and so forth. Doctor Sarah Good. Yes, thank you. Um, that was that was really moving. That was really helpful to hear what Christopher said there. Um, and I think my emphasis is uh, on two groups of people. Really, one group is the people who are at risk of 
uh, of harming children who feel those sexual urges and who and who are tempted to act out sexually against children. And so all the work that we're doing really is about how we can put mechanisms in place that will uh, help those people to understand the impact of their behaviour uh, and to uh, challenge them and support them in maintaining a non-offending lifestyle. That's one thing that I want to do. And the other thing that I think is hugely important is uh, raising awareness among the public generally. I mean, we've been talking about having gut feelings and acting on those intuitions, and it was really painful right. to hear um, that uh, anecdote uh, about um, feeling concern about uh, somebody outside of school, and that was completely dismissed and nobody responded effectively to that. And I think what we need to be doing as a society is just being able to respond much more effectively when people raise concerns and, and have an intuitive, an intuitive feeling uh, about uh, potential offenders. Um, yeah, that's that's uh, completely correct. Um, before we let Dr. Sarah Good go, um, Cam and Sue, do you have a comment? No, thank you so much, Dr. Good, for being on and... Um I would like to go on to your website as well. I'm going to go on there and, and look at some of the stuff that you've written. And I, I, I was curious, so just one thing is, um, do you know if there's anything in the works to bring something like what you have, the Stop It Now and your Get Help um, hotline to, to happen in the United States at this time, or is it only there where you're at? Uh, stops though at the moment is only in Britain. Um, in America, there's a project called the Dunkelfeld Project, uh, which uh, reaches out to um, people who are sexually attracted to, attracted to children out in the community. And can you say that them. again? I didn't hear that. Yes. What's the name? And for dark field. So it means those people who are unknown to any authorities. Um, and so they have an advertising campaign uh, saying things like, do you love children more than you should or more than you'd like to? Um, and if so, come and get help and support so that you don't offend against children. What you do have, of course, in, in America and the United States is a really excellent organization, Stop It Now, which was set up by Fran Henry in the 1990s. Um, Fran Henry herself was a survivor, is a survivor, um, and she set up this really, really helpful. Uh, if, if people haven't seen it, I'd, I'd thoroughly recommend go and have a look at the website. Stop Could it you now. send that link over to to me, yeah, Dr. Sure. Good? So yeah, so we can that. post that. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I would, so much. I would like I to post that. To talking to you. Yeah. Sue, do you have a question for Dr. Sarah or a comment before we let her go? Uh, that was basically my same question: Is um, how do we bring that here? Um, it, from the beginning, when Sherry and I started talking, uh, she's probably one of the first people that sat down and talked with me and talked about um, the difference between and I, I, you know it's something I've thought about for a long time: the difference between the word pedophile and sexual abuser, um, and really put a, de a line down through it. Um, but my question would be is from that point when we can get somebody into at least admit, you know, maybe these feelings are there and 
um, what can we do it? What is the process beyond beyond that? Is it intense therapy, and how much do you try to protect the kids, the children that are in their lives? Yes, I think that that varies very much from individual to individual. I mean, certainly, I have been in contact with men who have said to me uh, that they have been sexually attracted to children all their lives and they will never act on it. Um, And and they are very, very clear about the reasons why they won't act on it and they understand uh, the harm that uh, any adult sexual contact with children causes. Um, And obviously there are other men out there who are far more dangerous than that and men who are quite sort of deluded and, and in a state of denial about uh, about child sexual abuse, so I, I don't. It's, it's certainly not a one size fits all in any way. But mm-hmm. um, I think the, the most important thing to do, really, uh, what what the guys have said to me is having people around them who will challenge them and who will look at what they're doing realistically and confront them when their behaviour is out of line. And that's that's the most important way I think to keep, to keep children safe. Um, yeah, Doctor Good, I just yes, exactly. Um, I just I just shared the link to stop it now, and um, I shared other links for you as well. Um, we are going to be doing this every first Thursday. The next one is going to be December third, and I would very much uh, like to have you come on again if if you're able. I, I want to let the listeners know, Doctor Sarah's in the UK. It's like one. It's past one thirty in the morning for her, and she. <laughs> we have some. We have a little bit of tech issues because she is. Connecting with us through Skype, which Blog Talk Radio has now taken away, and I'm not sure how we're going to do this, but Dr. Sarah, I really would like you to come back again for the next uh, roundtable, but as well, I want to connect with you uh, off of this so that you and I can do a little bit of one-on-one uh, Q&A interview uh, to, to talk further about this very specific aspect, because I think you're on to something. So I, I just want to tell you, thank you so much for being with us tonight. I absolutely adore you. You have been more than generous <laughs> in accommodating with your time. So thank you so much. You're very, very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I will follow up with you soon. I'm going to jump right on over to uh, Frederick Lane, our cybercrime forensic child pornographer expert. Frederick, you've been a guest here before, and um, you, you are beyond gracious as well. You've been... Um, you know, my my friend uh, and a, another former guest, Mark Sade, uh, D.C. super attorney Mark Sade, uh, hooked us up mm-hmm. together uh, a couple months ago. And um, Mark is probably going to be on the show here in a couple weeks on the regular Wednesday CTR show. But um, I, I would hope, uh, Fred, if you're able uh, to be able to come back and join us, if not for the December 3rd one, again, we're going to be doing this every first Thursday of the month. I want a continuous conversation on this topic, all the different angles of this topic because that's the only way we're going to be able to crack this nut so um, I hope that you uh, can find some time in your very busy schedule to grace us again um, and come on the show do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners well for starters let me tell you that I think that this is a a really impressive initiative and I think it, it, it it speaks to the the belief that I have that that adult effective conversation is the best way to address these things. And I think, you know, the the emphasis on how this has too long been silent, which is exactly what we were talking about, the unwillingness of people 
to speak up when they see these things going on is exactly why this conversation is so important. So I'm I'm very grateful to have a chance to add my voice to this, and, and hopefully it will help to make some difference. Uh, the only thing I would leave your listeners with is that my my perspective on this is is the role that technology is playing in these particular issues, because I think that it, it's important to really understand how fast everything is moving and the social mores changes that we're experiencing. It's definitely a topic I'd like to discuss at a future date with you. Uh, people are certainly welcome to visit my blog, which is the Cybertraps blog, uh, which is on my website, fredericklane.com. I write about these issues. I'll definitely be updating some stuff about tonight. Um, so it's great to participate, and, and I appreciate all your efforts. Um, we appreciate you, uh, Frederick, and, and, and I, I would like to take you up on talking about the technology aspect. And uh, as a matter of fact, I'd like to invite you right here on the air, not to put you on the spot, but I'd like to do um, a show and just talk about sure. technology, not just in relation to pedophilia crimes, but technology in general as far as families and life goes. Yeah, um, and so absolutely. I'm going to follow up with you on that because I've enjoyed it. I'm so grateful for Mark Sade for hooking us up, and I, I feel a lifelong friendship with you. You have been so gracious with us here um, on the show. So thank you very much for coming on the show again, Fred. My pleasure, and, and I look forward to the next visit. Definitely, and I'll be sharing those links again for you. So, so thanks again. I'm going to jump on over right now uh, to Michael. Michael, you've been a little quiet. Um, are you still with us? I'm still with you. I, I'm not going to step on folks. <laughs> but no, I appreciate it. Uh, you you all have to admit, considering we've had a lot of people on here, it's been pretty smooth. <laughs> yeah, it's done well. <laughs> Yeah, so, um, Michael, do you have something to say with regards to the three guests that just left us? I know that you and Chris are personal friends, have, have known each other for a while now, but uh, Chris or the others, just in their parting statements? Well, I was just to have them come back on, but there was a few things that I was hearing that, again, I'm a survivor, but I, I take very strongly in the belief what I do. I'm also an advocate, so I, I will take issue on certain points or maybe try to offer a counterpoint or just something maybe to think about something a little bit differently. And I heard something, you know. That's valuable. The male abuse, and I I I can't say enough that there's got to be more focus also on female abusers. And, uh, and I think that gets swept under the rug by a lot of folks. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to look at it. So, But there was once upon a time... People didn't want to look at the abuse of females, so that is something. Uh, but, again, I appreciate what the folks are bringing to the table, and I think it's good to have these discussions to get different points of view, because even if I may not see eye to eye on something, I will go. I will think about it. I do. So, uh, no, and I'm just grateful that you have this well-rounded group of folks. I think it's great. Well, now that now that it's just, uh, I mean, I know that some of the guests that left, like Chris, are also survivors, but now that it's just survivors here, Joy, um, I'd like to go to you, and I want to get back to the, the disassociation. I myself, um, I, I don't have split, quote-unquote, split personalities or anything like that, but I have realized, especially in my, my latter years, that I very easily disassociate. 
I don't get quite as emotional about certain things anymore. I can be very cut and dry, do it, dump it, delegate it. So, uh, uh, Professor Bruckner, Joy, could you please kind of opine on that a little bit? Well, when uh, the disassociation was being discussed earlier, I think it was Christopher who brought it up. I was interested in in, uh, sharing how even though we are physiologically being stimulated, uh, we're being stimulated psychologically, we're being stimulated in every way when we're being assaulted. And uh, the disassociation, even though we try to uh, take ourselves out of the room and uh, put our minds into another state, the pleasure part forces us to be in the room, forces us to acknowledge the sex sex act. Right. And uh, that's the that's most difficult part of the abuse is when your abuser wants you to have a climax, to have an orgasm. And so uh, that's what I wanted to comment about the disassociation. We don't disassociate we connect at that point because we are designed to to have pleasure. We were created to have pleasure. And the fact that we're being initiated into this uh, sexual act at such a young age confuses us, but it also stimulates that part of our bodies that was created to be stimulated, but not at that age. Um, so Joy, that's what I want to bring. You. Pa- no, no, I want I want to continue on that, but but I want to pause for a moment, and I don't mean to skip over Kim and Sue, but I want to go right back to Michael for the male perspective, because your abuse started in infancy, so you didn't have that, as I said earlier, that typical grooming process where you're you have an awareness as as it's going along and aware, awareness of that. Um, And again, this is the hardest to the listeners. This is the hardest part probably for what you're going to hear in every roundtable that we do is that children, uh, many, not all, but many children of childhood sexual abuse, particularly those that were abused by family members, will have different periods in time through the abuse depending on how long it's going on and and by whom and all of that and and how it's happening where there's actual pleasure involved before you understand what that is. So, Michael, can you speak on that a little bit for your situation because it may be different? Well, for myself, I do deal with dissociation and I deal with it pretty much daily. It depends on the level because the the abuse was so much, it, it, it left its mark upon me. But that said, uh, I, there's still hope, there's still healing, there's help with that. But in terms of the sexual component piece of that, uh, and I did hear you on the, the promiscuous part, I was one who was quite promiscuous and starting at a young age because all I knew was physical touch. It, it felt to get good. love. That was love, yeah. Right. way for me to connect with people. And then the sad part of that, I would then push people away because I would think, well, if this girl, you know, had sex with me, she, doesn't she know that I'm dirty, I'm shameful, there's something wrong with her? So I, this was, you know, a teenager thinking really twisted thoughts. And even as a young adult, I just, I'm older now, and I realized back then I just didn't know how to have a connection with people 
I didn't know how to ask for a hug or just a handshake or just be my friend. So if I was with a female, I just, it was like a default mechanism. I went to that. But I I did not know that back then. And being in rock and roll bands, it, you know, it, it made things a little bit easy. But even, like I said, when I was younger, I was in a lot of um, relationships with uh, females my own age. And what I also realized later in life, as I've become aware of this, they were also survivors like myself, and somehow we would find each other. And that's all right. was that physical touch. And yes, it felt good, but yet, you know, we didn't have the emotional and the mental capacity to really understand it. Because, you know, we, we, we may be wired to have sex at 14 and 15 or 13 and 12, but you really don't understand what's going on. And I'm saying that. From Not emotionally, yeah. You just right. did may have seemed great at the time and all of it, but I I wish it hadn't been that way, but it, but it was. And when you talk about dissociation, I never used to share this because I was, I was afraid of sharing that I deal with dissociation because I've already had enough stigma and discrimination labeled against me because of what I deal with. Right. I, I, I remember sometimes waking up in my bed or in a female's bed, and I was like, how the hell did I get here? And I'm not talking that I was drunk, and I never did drugs. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I couldn't understand that what what fugue state I went into, but, but that happened. So that was that's my little I'll, – I'll be quiet now to see if you want to comment on any of this. But Actually, so Michael, I, that, that's a great point, and that's a great segue. I'm going to bounce it straight to Joy, and then we're going to go to Sue – and Kim, and then Michael, and then I'm going to close out the show because we are getting ready to run out of time. I'm going to pose a specific question to you, Joy. You teach a class uh, at a university about uh, childhood sexual abuse and incest and all of that, and everybody here on the panel has experienced uh, incest except for Sue. Uh, It was a neighborhood family-type friend. Um, But it's not that much different in her situation either for this question. Joy, uh, Professor Bruckner, when when people are becoming adults um, and in our lives now, we've all lived different lives and we've all had many similar struggles and then different struggles as well um, for yourself. You're a professor, you teach this, you've written a book, um, you are really a credentialed expert on the topic as well as a survivor. How is this affecting adults and how do adults move forward from this? And, and, and all these little things about the promiscuity and the problems in life and wanting a hug, you know, a hug. How do you ask for a hug without it being sexual? So a man hugs me, oh, he must love me, he must want me, right? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because that is a very very important question based on the fact as adults we have to figure out how to communicate we have to figure out how to have emotions we have to figure out how to talk to people and be in a uh, a social setting and one of the things that happens to us as children that all gets distorted we don't know how to talk we don't know how to say i want a hug We don't know how to feel our emotions. And one of the things that I have been experiencing over the last two years is feel my emotions. Emotions are amoral. That's the good news. Emotions are not evil and they are not good. They're nothing. They're just emotions. 
it's okay to cry. It's okay to feel fear. It's okay to say I'm angry. And that is so, so instrumental in healing, being able to feel. Because disassociation says I am not going to feel. I'm not going to let you hurt me. I'm going to protect myself. But disassociation actually hurts you more than it helps you. Right. Exactly. Sue? Uh, and that, um, Michael said and what Joy said, uh, yeah, it's definitely me. I went through, even though this this first experience for me um, really put me in a bad place, there were, there were other people that abused me beyond that, um, a time of about 11 years old, um, and, and it it never evolved into sex, but there was definitely abuse. And I started correlating every relationship to um, any time I feel a connection to someone, there's going to be this sick, twisted payoff in the end. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I went from that to about, uh, up until about, um, 14, when I became a little more sexually aggressive, where if if everyone is going to abuse me, then I'm going to take control. Right. And and that's where for me the promiscuity came in. And from between 14 and probably 19 uh, was some pretty wicked years. And. <laughs> There was a lot for me to deal with from from that point in the healing part. Um, it wasn't until then that I started asking for help and saying, "This is just this is more than I can handle." But Sue, before we jump over to Kim uh, to comment on that, mm-hmm. I want to jump back quickly to Michael for the male perspective on that uh, on what Sue just said. Michael, it's just, are you still with us, Michael? I, I am. It's just it's hard because when I hear folks talking, I have empathy, and there's a part of me that just, I'm feeling sadness for and I'm like, I, I wish there was someone back then in her life to help her get through that, and so the flip side of that, I'm grateful that, you know, there's a show like this, so hopefully, if some young person is hearing this, what we're sharing openly, they may reach for help, and they may connect the dots by what just shared by, you know, all of us on the last several minutes and also throughout the show. Um, For the listeners, go ahead. I just wanted to say something to to Michael. Something that you said really struck me uh, very, very hard earlier, Michael, and that is uh, how you knew that your parents did not love you. You know, uh, for people who have never been victimized, I'm sure that that touches them, but because I have been victimized when you said that, I wanted to just take that little Michael inside of you and hug him and let him know that he is so precious. And I I just wanted you to know that I felt so much compassion towards you, Michael, after you said what you said about your parents. And I am so sorry that happened to you. And I just want you to know that that little Michael inside of you needs to be nurtured, and he's a very special little Michael. Thank you. 
Thank you. That's, you know, very, that's any... very true. I think we're all revisiting our, you know, who we were as children and still grieving that. We have a, a comment in the live chat room for the show from Paula Contreras, who is a regular listener of Challenging the Rhetoric, and um, on this particular point, and she was saying that sometimes this stuff can make you turn very inward because you're scared, quote, because you're scared to get close to other people because someone might find your secret. Um, and I think that that is another aspect that we're definitely going to need to revisit in in future roundtables here that we do every first Thursday um, on this on this network. Um, Kim, I want you to address uh, what we're talking about about kind of in the now and and our relationships and how all that works. And the, the disassociation too. Yeah, I I absolutely feel that. I know that it's um, a struggle for me. Anytime I know that I'm going to go out into a, a public place, really. And I think it's gotten worse as I've gotten older, for sure. I don't know if I just don't have the patience for people. But um, I just kind of disassociate. And um, I have to really put myself out there. I just recently had to um, to change churches for some reasons that weren't mine. And um, I would not have probably left there ever even though I because I had been there for 20 years and um, I had so ingrained myself and the person that I wanted to be in that church and you know I had built I had built this persona of who I was who my family was and I had the perfect family and you know I was never touched by anything bad I mean that was just the persona that I I put out there and that's and it was believable <laughs> for so many years. And then when um, this happened a few months ago that I needed to leave there, um, oh, my gosh, I could have just retreated and, and went in a hole. It just so happened it was within a couple of weeks that Sherry asked me to come on the show. So I, I you know, <laughs> in my life, and I know not everybody agrees with me on this, but I feel personally in my life, that my faith has had a huge part in my healing, being able to forgive the people who have abused me, and also, um, you know, being able to recognize that I've disassociated and then try and reconnect again. I, I feel that I'm doing that on a daily basis, and, and I'm very mindful of it as well. So um, I right. think as, as far I, I, as disassociating I, when you're younger... Uh, you know, absolutely. I'm sure <laughs> you I, did. I, I, I disassociated so. in a lot of situations that um, just to get through it. I think maybe so. we even still disassociate now in minor things, and we're not realizing as it happens. Before we go any further, I want to. Um, I'm going to. Uh, drop a couple guests off the show so that we can close this out. We only have like literally a couple minutes. Um, first and foremost, thank you very much, Michael Skinner. I hope that you come back and join us again. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, all. It was Thank you all. it was wonderful having you, um, Joy uh, yeah. Professor Bruckner. And I said your name a couple times wrong, and I apologize. It is Joy Bruckner. She's out of Florida. Joy, what is the college that you teach at? University of North Florida. There you go, Joy. Uh, Joy has committed to being here with us every month, so Joy will be back with us when we're here for the first Thursdays in December. Um, so, Joy, thank you very much uh, for being with us tonight. Thank you for having me. It was an honor. 
Thank you. It was an honor for you for us as well. Um, Sue, thank you very much. Sue is our social media manager for uh, Sickness of Silence, hashtag SOS, and she's also uh, in our research department. Sue, thank you for everything. Uh, You're wonderful, and we'll be back again with you uh, next month. Okay. Uh, Kim, my co-host Kim Lagan and I would like to close the show and tell everybody thank you. We literally have about 60 seconds left. Um, Kim, really quickly, I want to say thank you for taking this journey and this trip with me after all these years. Well, thank you for finding me and taking me on it with you. Um, I do think that things, you know, happen for a reason, and, and I'm, like I said before, just excited to see where this leads how we can be helpful to others as well and and i'm sure i'm going to have plenty of time to talk so um i'm not worried about (laughs) not talking much tonight (laughs) yeah you know that's the thing this is an ongoing conversation this isn't static this is for everybody to know that we are going to be here for a long time the next roundtable is going to be thursday december 3rd first thursdays every month We are here. We're not going to stop. We're not going to wait for you to come to us. We're going to keep talking about it because you need to keep talking about it. Sickness of Silence, hashtag SOS. Visit the website at sicknessofsilence.org or .com. It will take you to the same place. If you want to contribute to the show in a financial way, you can go to gofundme.com forward slash sicknessofsilence or just share our links. That's a lot of support. Listen and share. We love you. I'll see you next month on this, and I'll be back with Challenging the Rhetoric next Wednesday at 6 o'clock.